Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be back. And we always like to open up with the Angelus. Do you have any special intentions for our Angelus today? You know, today's the feast of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Also, her name was Edith Stein. Uh And of course, as you know, she was a martyr in Auschwitz. I thought it would be good to pray for all those who are persecuted for the faith today. All our brothers and sisters in Christ and countries where they're suffering for the faith, imprisoned or even some who are threatened with death. Uh, Let's remember them as we pray the Angelus. Definitely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Father, and of the the Son, and of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Join Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, as he talks about the tremendous example of two great saints of World War II, whose feast days are this week, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, or Edith Stein, and St. Maximilian Kolbe. Both were martyred at Auschwitz. Bishop shares their stories and discusses how we can learn from them today. Then he'll talk about what it was like to visit Auschwitz. Afterwards, it's on to a discussion of the church's role during World War II, as well as the elements of just war theory. And also, listeners submitted questions, which include topics like how we can best navigate the current mainstream news outlets, and what is the most appropriate way to greet a bishop? He'll also answer a question from a priest in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or call 260-436-9598. This is Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with the Bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. Thank you for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Always good to be with you and your listeners. I've really been enjoying the show and getting to know you a little bit better and, and having you answer some of these great questions that we have from our listeners. And today we celebrate, as you mentioned, the memorial of St. Teresa Benedicta, also known as Edith Stein. And then also coming up on Monday, we'll have the, the memorial of St. Maximilian Kolbe. 
Yeah. Both of which were martyrs. And both at Auschwitz, mm -hmm. in the death camp of Auschwitz. Can you give us a little background on the two of them? Sure. They were both uh, canonized by St. John Paul II. And actually, I was at the canonization of of uh, Maximilian Kolbe. It was the largest crowd I ever saw in St. Peter's Square. Yeah. But their lives and their deaths as martyrs, what a tremendous example, how heroic and inspiring they are in that really experience of such great evil, the evil of the Holocaust. Edith Stein, as, as our listeners may know, was Jewish, um, and she converted to Catholicism. I think she was around 30 years old. She was an incredible woman. Edith Stein was someone who was searching for truth. She was brought up in a pretty devout Jewish home, especially her mother. She studied philosophy. She worked for women's suffrage. I mean, she was quite a woman at that time. This mm -hmm. is like the early 1900s. She was yeah. born in 1891. And uh, she was under the mentorship of a famous philosopher named Edmund Husserl. And she was kind of like his teaching assistant. And anyhow, she's, she was really a philosopher. She ended up getting her doctorate in philosophy. And along the way, uh, she discovered Christ. And it's really a beautiful conversion story. I don't have time, I don't think, to go sure. through her whole, her whole story of conversion. But one key moment in the process was when she read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. Huh. When she read it all in her uh, in one night, and uh, she wrote that when she finished the book, she said to herself, "This is the truth." Huh. So then she got baptized in 1922, pretty early on. I mean, almost right afterwards, she wanted to become a, a Carmelite nun, but the bishop dissuaded her, thought it was too soon. So it wasn't until some years later that she actually became a Carmelite. Now, this was, by the way, extremely difficult for her mother and her family. Her mother just didn't understand. She, her mother thought Jesus was was uh, a great teacher, but she, she just couldn't accept that he was the Son of God. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, Edith Stein continued, and uh, when she became a Carmelite, because of being Jewish, her Jewish blood, the Carmelites moved her because by this time, you know, the Nazis had taken over Germany and there were a lot of severe measures against the Jewish people. So the her Carmelite superiors had her moved to a convent in the Netherlands, in Holland. But even there, what happened was, if you know your history of the church during World War II, the Dutch bishops put out a letter real strong letter that was read in all the Catholic churches condemning Hitler and Nazism. Hmm. Well, in retaliation, the Nazis not only rounded up not only the Jews in the Netherlands, but also Jews who had been baptized, who had become Catholic. Okay. So St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross never denied her, her Jewishness. Hmm. She had become Catholic, but she never abandoned her people. Okay. And she didn't feel it was right for her to be somehow rescued and not suffer the fate of her own people. So when the Gestapo came, she was arrested. Her sister, too. Her sister had also joined and become Catholic, her sister Rosa. Hmm. And they were both taken, I think it was in the middle of the night. And that's, by the way, it says a Carmelite that she got the name her religious name was Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Uh -huh. 
Uh, by the way, she wrote a book, The Science of the Cross. She studied the writings of St. John of the Cross. It's a beautiful book, but her philosophical writings are not easy writings, but, <laughs> but they are beautiful. Anyhow, I'm getting off the track. <laughs> After they were arrested, they were taken to some concentration camp, eventually ended up at Auschwitz and probably were, you know, when they would take, I've been to Auschwitz twice. I mean, what a, it's like being, it's like hell on earth when you think of what happened there. But even the hell you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the light of Christ shown even in such a horrible place, shown through people like Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta. It's thought that when she got, she was probably one, oftentimes when they got off the trains, they were put in a, one of three lines. They would either be go to a line where they'd be taken to the concentration camp to work, the labor camp, or another line, they'd be put in a line for medical experimentations, which were awful, gruesome. Mm -hmm. Or third, just put in the taken right away to the gas chambers. Wow. It's thought that she was probably taken right away to the gas chambers, she and her sister. Hmm. And it's generally thought it was August 9th, so that's why today is her, her feast day. I prayed, I'll, I'll never forget, I prayed at the railroad tracks where the end where all the these innocent people got off the trains that's still there it's actually in Birkenau which is Birkenau and Auschwitz are two very close and I remember praying one of the Psalms I was there with a group of Jewish rabbis and hmm. uh, and a few Catholic bishops and Jewish rabbis and I prayed they asked me to pray there and I read one, the, one of the Psalms uh, because I figured you know, the Psalms were prayed by both Jews and Christians sure and it was there at the spot where, where Edith Stein, but also millions of others, were put to death in the mm -hmm. gas chambers. So she's a, a, a beautiful, beautiful saint. And it's interesting when St. John Paul II called her a daughter of Israel hmm. and a Catholic. In other words, it, she remained faithful to our crucified Lord, to Jesus. And as a Jew, she also remained faithful to her people. How many times have you been to Auschwitz? Twice. That one time with the rabbis and the bishops, and then the second time, World Youth Day, right. this past, uh, a year ago, with our young people. That was a very powerful experience for our young people, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when you walk through the camps, it's, I mean, you can't, it's, it's such a place of horror. You almost, it's almost unbelievable to think of the inhumanity the evil there uh, that happened there you, you really it's almost like a place where you don't want to you can't speak yeah you know you kind of walk through in silence especially as you see the places or look at the photos that they have and yet you have the faith that that god overcomes evil and he does in the death of his son when you described sister Teresa benedicta i can see a couple different people really relating to her. One might be a parent who sees their child kind of drifting away from the faith and having doubt because she probably did that to her parents, you know, put yeah. them to that. Uh, but then also that moment where you explain that her parents wouldn't convert. And right. so we see that in Catholics who might have a parent that's not Catholic and, and yeah. being able to relate to her on a couple different levels there. Edith Stein's father died when she was a little child. Okay. But her mother, who she was close to, Edith's conversion to Catholicism was difficult. But I think what was much more difficult was when she became a nun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Edith Stein, before she went off to the convent in uh, 
I guess, in Holland. She did have like a day or two with her mother, and her mother just couldn't accept it. So it must have been very painful because after that, Sister Teresa Benedicta wrote letters, I think every month or something, to her mother, and her mother never responded. Mm. But yet she, when he le- she learned of her mother's death, she had this great confidence and prayed for her mother because she knew her mother was a very good person, you know, a very faithful yeah. Jewish woman. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about another saint, St. Maximilian Kolbe, another World War II saint. And with this issue, it kind of brings up some questions about war. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about just war theory here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking a little bit about some World War II saints with St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. And also you mentioned uh, on Monday we're going to have the celebration of St. Maximilian Kolbe, another World War II saint, a martyr, who actually took the place of another person in the gas chamber or the death uh, starvation. Auschwitz, yeah. yeah. Starvation bunker, yeah. Yeah. Father Maximilian Kolbe, he was a conventual Franciscan. He had a great love for the Immaculate, the, the Blessed Mother. He mm-hmm. called her the Immaculata, the mm-hmm. Immaculate Virgin Mary. So even before he was arrested and everything else, he was already, his life work, life's work, he was Polish as a Franciscan priest, was to bring the world to God through Christ under what he called the generalship of Mary. So he founded hmm. this movement called the Militia of Mary Immaculate. And huge printing apostolate that he had in Poland, spreading this devotion. And then he went to Japan as a missionary and started the Militia, militia of Mary Immaculate in Japan. So this he was pretty well known as a priest because mm-hmm. of his work in this area. It was probably what he's best known for, of course, though, is his martyrdom. I think I mentioned earlier, I attended his canonization. It was the largest crowd I had seen in St. Peter's Square. And the man whose life he saved was there. Hmm. He was like in his 90s. And John Paul, and oh my goodness, it was very emotional to see that. But for those listeners who don't know the story, when a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz, they would kill 10 prisoners the Nazis would kill 10 prisoners in retaliation for one escape. Uh-huh. So they had the prisoners lined up, and as they chose the 10, this one man cried out, please don't take me. I have a wife. I have a kid. I have children. They need me. Mm-hmm. At that point, Father Colby stepped forward and said, take me instead. The guards just kind of sneered and laughed and said, okay, we'll take you. So Father Maximilian Colby and uh, the other nine prisoners were were taken to a uh, a bunker and uh, left there to starve to death. And while they were there during the days of starving, no food, Father Colby encouraged the other prisoners. He prayed with them. He he sang with them, kind of helping them to be ready to to die in that starvation cell. He led them in praying the rosary, singing hymns. So he brought love yeah. into that that awful experience. That uh, he brought holiness. So the starvation cell didn't uh, defeat him. Hmm. It became 
someone, a writer once said, a tabernacle in the cruelest part of Auschwitz. It's like God had snuck into hell. So two weeks went by, and the prisoners were dying one by one. And it was only uh, a few left by August 14th, which is the vigil of the Feast of the Assumption of Mary. So Father Colby was one of the four left. So the the SS decided things were taking too long, so they killed them with injections of carbolic acid. And Father Colby, by the way, forgave the guard executioner Mm. before he was injected. So he, I mean, amazing. And he wanted to die on the Feast of Our Lady. He was murdered on the vigil of the Feast of the Assumption, but then his body was taken to the crematorium on the 15th. And his death shocked the whole camp. But in a sense, he lived our Lord's words, love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Father Colby did. He laid down his life for that one prisoner. Yeah. Some would say that the Catholic Church didn't do enough to help those that were being persecuted by the Nazi party, or even that they helped in the persecutions. How would you respond to that? That's, I mean, we could spend a whole hour, at least an hour on this, Kyle. I think you have to look at the history and, you know, as the Vatican archives have been opened up in that period of, of, of church history, we're finding out more and more about what happened. Certainly, Pope Pius XI, he wrote two encyclicals condemning Nazism. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this was at the time that Hitler was gaining in popularity and when he became not only the head of the Nazi party, but then the dictator in Germany. Pius XI was then followed, as everyone knows, by Pope Pius XII. Pope Pius XII, by that time, the war had started, World War II had started. Pius XII was also well known for speaking out against it, but it was more subtly. For example, his Christmas radio addresses. He was less direct than Pius XI. And part of the reason, and it's pretty well evident, is he preferred to work behind the scenes, did a lot of work to save Jewish people from different places. The problem was, and I think in, you know, some criticize Pope Pius XII, I don't think it's really fair, but he kind of had to work more diplomatically because like when the Dutch bishops spoke out so publicly, many more people were killed by the Nazis because of that. Mm. So I think Pius XII was just being more careful. So he'd work behind the scenes. He would, you know, so many Jewish people were saved, especially in Rome and Italy. There were certain bishops in Germany too, who were real real strong against Hitler, and they were put to death. Some priests like Father Colby and many, many others. There were thousands of priests in Poland who were killed. But at the same time, there were those who cooperated with the Nazis. Hmm. So it's, it's not like black and white. I mean, there were Catholics in Germany who were Nazis, who joined the Nazi party. Now, some were forced to, like the Hitler Youth, every, every German child had to be part of it. They, they couldn't get out of it. Yeah. But you had heroes there. But you had those who cooperated with the regime, though. You had those who opposed him. So it's, it's you know, again, in, in this segment of the program, I can't get into to everything. But I think it's – and there's some very good books written about Pius XII mm-hmm. and what he did. As I mentioned, his predecessor, Pope Pius XI, actually wrote – two encyclicals that condemned both Nazism and communism. There was also 
the concern about the violations of, of human dignity by communists in Russia. So that was also a, a grave concern of the popes. If you look, though, at the Christmas radio messages of Pope Pius Twelfth and other things, you could see that he, he definitely was an opponent of Hitler and Nazism. Mm-hmm. I think it also brings up the question then with this horrible atrocity that's happening. We have just war theory, and there are times where it's okay to interact in a situation, and there's times where it's not okay. Can you explain a little bit about just war theory? Again, this is probably yeah. another whole hour of conversation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's probably good. Do you think it'd be good to just kind of review with your listeners, Kyle, what what the just war theory is? Yeah. I think okay. That'd be great. There's there's certain elements that are traditional elements of the just war doctrine, mm-hmm. and it's right there in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If if the listeners want to look it up, I highly recommend reading the section on the Catechism that deals with war and peace. It actually begins on number 2302 and goes all the way through to 2317. It kind of gives a good summary, but part of that is what are the conditions Mm -hmm. for a legitimate defense by military force? Yeah. Now, notice I said defense. You know, we're talking about legitimate defense because the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, forbids the intentional destruction of human life. So what we're saying is the only thing that could be legitimate is it has to be something that's defending. And you have to be very rigorous. The church is quite rigorous in these conditions so that if it's determined that war would be in any way morally legitimate. Because obviously, you know, our our religion is a religion of peace. It's all about Christ, the Prince of Peace, who also taught us to love our enemies. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, let's get to the conditions for a just war. The first one listed in number 2309 of the Catechism is the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. So that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, that condition, it, it's uh, the damage that would be inflicted or it's being inflicted is something that's extremely grave. Mm-hmm. It's certain damage. It's lasting. Now you can think about something like World War II mm-hmm. when you look at that condition. I mean, the damage inflicted by the Nazis on the, the nations in Europe that were victims like Poland certainly was sure. uh, lasting, grave, and certain. Another condition, all, and by the way, this isn't like you choose one or the other. All these conditions have to be filled. Okay. So the second one is all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... You have to try other means first. Yeah. Last, that's, yeah, last resort. Last resort. And that's why John Paul said that, that, that the Iraq war was not just. He didn't think it was the last resort. Mm-hmm. Number three, there must be serious prospects of success. It shouldn't be something that's futile. Right. Four, 
The use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. Okay. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. Uh -huh. And I think especially nuclear. Right. When you think of nuclear arms, you know, could, it, could they ever be justified? I don't think so. Okay. I honestly don't. If you look at that fourth condition, it says the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. Well, and a nuclear weapon is not uh, very specific to target the aggressor. You always have a lot of innocent lives involved. Exactly. And, um, you know, yeah, that's true. And the popes, you know, you think of John the Twenty Third, his great encyclical on peace, Pacem Interis, the teachings of Paul the Sixth, certainly John Paul the Second, very, very strong, Benedict the Sixteenth, and Pope Francis. I mean, it's pretty, and, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Church's teaching on war and peace. I think we need to make better known. Hmm. So, was that all of the just Those war are the conditions? conditions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that comes up sometimes is people accusing religion of causing or inducing war. What would you say to that? Well, I think anything could be anything, even something something good can be misused. Mm. I would say that there are religious extremists who, yeah, promote violence. That's a corruption of religion. It's really a corruption of religion. Yeah. We can think of obviously very everyone knows today about the radical Islam, mm -hmm. uh, where those who are really perverting their own religion, even committing the blasphemy of saying like, this is something God wills, right. the killing of innocent people, terrorism. So, but we've seen that also in Christian history, where some Christians have also committed crimes against humanity, trying to justify by, by religion. That's not you know, we can never use God to justify anything that deals with hatred or, or harming the innocent. Actually, religion is a force for good, you know, certainly Christianity, but even other religions can promote good. You have adherence to certain religions that, um, you know, can do evil mm -hmm. and, and do it in the name of religion, yeah. of their religion, which is wrong. Well, and I know that we need to be constantly praying for peace. Uh, that's obvious. What are some other things that we can do to work for peace? You know, I think there's a lot of violence in words going on, even in recent political campaigns, etc. I think we need to also build peace in our families, in our communities, in our nation. How do things escalate to the point where you have violence and bloodshed? Often it begins with other injustices beforehand. We have to get to the root causes. When you think about peace is the work of justice. So where there's injustice, that people can more likely take recourse to violence. It doesn't justify it, but we need to get to the root causes. So I think we have to work for peace on every level, not just world peace, but peace in our own families, peace in our own communities. It really is reconciliation using peaceful and respectful means to resolve conflict. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop Rhodes, you can submit those at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And coming up, we'll ask some of the questions that have been submitted by listeners, including one from my mom. 
right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have had many submissions of questions from listeners. Uh, One of them comes from my mom, Joanne Hyman, from St. Mary's Decatur, says, What is the appropriate greeting when one meets a bishop, and what do you prefer? Thank you, Joanne. Thanks for calling in. There's two ways one can address a bishop. One is a very formal way. One would say, Your Excellency. Mm -hmm. But the more common and less formal way is bishop, just saying bishop. That's at least in the United States. In Africa, like some of our African priests, they'll, they'll refer to me as your grace. Okay. So it depends on what country you're from. But in the U.S., it's usually just bishop or your excellency. The Spanish will sometimes say monseñor, which hmm. means my lord, monsignor. Okay. Yeah. She also asked, what would be the appropriate greeting when one meets an archbishop, cardinal, or pope? Well, an archbishop is still, uh, it would just be your excellency. Okay. Or archbishop. So very similar to a bishop. Uh-huh. But when you meet a cardinal, you can say cardinal. That's very informal. It's more common to say your eminence. Eminence. Your okay. eminence. And the Pope, it would be your holiness, or you could say just holy father. Okay. I've used both when I've met the different popes. I've said your holiness. Holy father sounds a little more intimate, you know, a little more affectionate in some ways. I kind of like saying holy father. And how many times have you met popes? Well, I only met Pope Francis twice, Pope Benedict um, Oh, my goodness, I met him a, a few times as, when he was a cardinal and three or four times as pope, and John Paul probably six or seven times. Okay. My mom also wanted to say that Fort Wayne South Bend was truly blessed when you were assigned to our diocese. Thank you for all you do for our flock. Thanks, Joanne. But I'm the one who's truly blessed for being able to, to lead the church here in Fort Wayne South Bend. There's another tradition of kissing the ring of a bishop, cardinal, or pope. Is that something that people do very often? Uh, Sometimes. Not as often as it used to be. I mean, I always kiss the pope's ring Mm -hmm. when I greet him. But no, I I think it depends. Probably among our Hispanic community, they, they tend to kiss the ring more, or they'll kiss the hand. But it's not as common now as it used to be. Do you have a preference or something that... You're maybe you're no, uncomfortable with? No, I don't have any preference because I know if someone, for example, kisses the ring, I, it's not about me. Uh-huh. It's about the office of bishop. Yeah, so it would never be something that I would ask someone to do, nor would it be something that I would ever refuse okay. from someone to do. Do you design your own ring? We get to choose, yeah. Okay. And I, I got a very simple one. My sister gave it to me. I asked. Uh, it's um, in memory of my mom. And it's the same ring that uh, Pope Paul VI gave to all the bishops at the Second Vatican Council. Okay. Another question we have comes from Lillian Brumbaugh from Saints Peter and Paul in Huntington. She asked, if a sister decided to leave the order, can she get married again if she's already married to Jesus? That's a good question, Lillian. I, I wouldn't take that idea of being married to Jesus. It's not literal. We shouldn't understand that in a literal sense. It's more of a kind of a spiritual kind of way of thinking about it. So basically, it would be very serious for a religious, whether it's a sister, religious sister, a religious brother, religious priest, to leave 
a religious congregation, especially if they're in in perpetual vows. Right. Because if they've made these permanent perpetual vows for life, uh, that's a very serious thing. You know, mm-hmm. in the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and to be living in that religious congregation. So one would need what's called an indult of departure from the religious institute, an indult of departure. And there'd have to be a very grave reason for someone to leave if they're in perpetual vows. If one gets an indult, then they no longer are bound by the vows they made. They're automatically dispensed. So let's say if you had a religious sister who received an indult of departure to leave from her religious institute, she would then be free to marry. But that is not easily given. Now, where who gives that indult? Well, for a, a religious institute of pontifical right, those that are directly under Rome, it's only Rome. It's only the apostolic see that can give that indult. Hmm. So a lot of the communities, for example, that we know here in our diocese, they are pontifical institutes. So I have no authority. I could never give an indult of departure, let's say, to the Sisters of St. Francis or the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ or the Sisters of Providence or Victory Knoll Sisters or with the brothers, the Holy Cross brothers, Holy Cross priests. If they want to leave their community, they would have to petition Rome and to get an indult of departure. And, and you might say, well, what would be a grave reason? And, and the, ch- the church says the gravest of causes because yeah. they've made a permanent commitment. Then they're not wanting it. Well, it may be that they just are unable to live the life, hmm. you know, and there could be psychological things going on, whatever. Sometimes maybe their formation wasn't really great and the discernment process wasn't good, that they maybe they didn't have really make the proper discernment before they took the vows. So anyhow, I hope that answers the question. Is there a difference between the vows that a brother and sister take versus the vows that a married couple or even a priest would take during the sacraments that happen in those two? Yeah. That it's not sacramental for the right. brother and sister? Right. That's why an indult can be given. Okay. You can't get an indult to get out of the sacrament of marriage. Okay. The only thing would be a... a a declaration of nullity, mm-hmm. which would be a declaration by the church that there was no marriage there to begin with, that it was invalid from the beginning. That's what an annulment is. But we're not talking about a sacramental bond right. when we're talking about, or an indissoluble bond when you're talking about a religious. Mm-hmm. By the way, I did say that Rome grants these, is the only one able to give these indults. But if it's a religious institute of diocesan right, a diocesan religious institute, then the bishop could give the indult. But we don't have any of those in our diocese okay. at this point, so I, that I know of. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, and then when you talk about the promises that a priest makes at ordination, now that's another sacrament, of course. Mm-hmm. But a priest could be dispensed from, let's say, let's say a priest leaves the active ministry. Mm-hmm. Now this isn't really great. You know, this isn't real pleasant to talk about. But let's say a priest leaves the active ministry. He's still a priest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in his soul. So you can't, in a sense, leave the priesthood in an ontological sense. But let's say a priest uh, d- decides to leave the active ministry. He can't get married unless he gets a dispensation from celibacy. And it's kind of like the other thing. It's not easy to get. There'd have to be very grave reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and that can only be given by the Pope. Oh, wow. 
I could I can't give that dispensation from celibacy hmm. or the other obligations of the priestly order. Yeah. Before I ask the next question, do you say St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend or St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend? St. Therese, they say in okay. South Bend, and St. Therese, they say in Fort Wayne. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> keeping, it, keeping it mixed up a little bit. Uh-huh. Well, Tammy Golubsky from St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend said, the adoption services provided by Catholic Charities Fort Wayne South Bend was excellent beyond compare. Is there any way that it can be saved? I hope so, because I think adoption services are needed. I think it's um, it's a beautiful part of our pro-life mission, too. Mm-hmm. And there are so many, I know, so many wonderful couples that desire to adopt a child. Unfortunately, adoption in this culture has a, a, a stigma to it, which is we've got to overcome that. But that's kind of some of the, I would say, some of that negative rhetoric of pro-choice camp. Hmm. So, no, I'm hoping that we can be able to offer adoption services in our Catholic charities without any coercion or interference by the state. So we need to have the freedom Mm -hmm. to be able to operate our adoption services according to the teachings and the tenets of our Catholic faith. And so just to clarify, we had to stop doing the adoptions because of state mandates on who we would No, right now, I mean, we still do some adoption services. We still continue to assist those who, for example, who've had adoptions through our Catholic charities. Mm -hmm. We're not taking new cases until we're sure that we can follow our own conscience on this. Right. All right. Well, when we come back, we will have some more questions from listeners. You can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, one of the questions comes from one of our priests. So we'll get to that here in just a minute on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with the Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, and we're answering questions submitted by listeners And I'm excited about this next question because I I think this is going to involve me a little bit too in the media here. Bill Schmidt from St. Joseph South Bend writes, Today's mainstream media has become obsessed with making attacks and judgments, which has caused them to stray from traditional journalistic values. Do you have any suggestions for media professionals on how to cover news? And he also adds, how about for Catholic audiences on how to approach consuming the news? Thank you, Bill. That's a really good question. I think it points to the idea of ethics in communications, Mm -hmm. ethics in media. We need to have, I think especially media professionals, need to be formed in good ethics. Because what are the purposes of media? What are the purposes of our communication networks? It should be to communicate truth. Mm -hmm. That's an obligation, first and foremost. You know, we hear a lot about fake news and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we talk about freedom of the press. What's really important is an injustice to people when the truth is not not shared, isn't mm-hmm. communicated. So there needs to be honesty on the part of journalists and other the others who deliver the news. Honesty. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bias, media bias, that really can turn people off. There's also the decision of what's newsworthy. Mm-hmm. There are things that I, I get upset, for example, when there's something very newsworthy. And because of prejudice, things are not covered. Right. We would see this 
year in and year out with the March for Life right. in Washington, where we would have hundreds of thousands of us, those who are pro-life, and so many of the major media networks, the TV and also print media, just ignore it. Right. Whereas it could be a much smaller crowd on a cause that they feel that they would support, mm-hmm. and they'll give big news to it. Right. That's bias. That's not being truthful. Mm-hmm. That's not covering what is newsworthy. I know the, the the frustration of that. That's one of the good things about social media, too, is you can get the news out without having to d- depend on some of these big networks that have a prejudice against certain moral values that mm-hmm. we hold dear, like pro-life. So I think it's important to recognize for media professionals to to be aware of their responsibility. But then those of us who are consumers of media also have to be very discerning and selective. I think of parents, for example, mm-hmm. and especially to, to not neglect their responsibility to make sure that the media that their children are watching is okay, is good. You know, when you think about it, communications media should be serving the common good. That's what it's all about. It should be serving the human person, building up the human community based on solidarity, justice, love, spreading the truth about human life and its final fulfillment. Sometimes I worry about the power of the media in influencing public opinion, especially if those who are exercising that power are working from values that are antithetical to the gospel. Well, and some might see all the confusion with, is it true or is it not true, and and not know what to think of everything, and maybe kind of shun it and say, I'm not even going to look at the news. Is there a danger in that, of not being aware of what's going on? I think there is. I mean, we can't live in our own cocoon. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you have to look at various news outlets. We talk about the conservative-liberal divide, or mm-hmm. the divide between the left and the right. I look at both. Yeah, that helps me. Okay, what what's Fox News saying, and what are, what's CNN saying, mm-hmm. or even in the, some Catholic media, you see some of that too. But generally, most of our Catholic media, I think, is doing a pretty good job. Okay. Well, one last question comes from Father Eric Bergner from Saint Pius the Tenth in Granger. He asks. What's your favorite food? <laughs> Father Eric, I can't believe that you would call in that question. Does By he know the, way, the answer already? Uh, well, I tease him about his diet, so I know <laughs> okay. that's why he's doing that. Um, Father Eric, I just ordained Father Eric for our listeners yeah. uh, and Father Dennis back in June. Two wonderful new young priests. And uh, I'd always get on Father Eric's case to make sure he was eating healthy and getting the proper (laughs) exercise. So that's funny that he asked what my favorite food is. But anyhow, I was just at a Tin Caps game in Fort Wayne, and I discovered uh, (laughs) something that was really good that they told me is a big Indiana dish, which I've been here seven and a half years and I didn't know it, but yeah. veal tenderloin sandwiches. Oh, okay. And it was really good. Yeah. But that's not my favorite food. I would say, <laughs> Father Eric, it would be a healthy Mediterranean diet, Italian <laughs> and Greek food. And I'm part Greek, so I love Greek food, Greek yeah. salads, Italian food, all kinds. Uh-huh. Olives? Olives I can eat. <laughs> I used to, I I used to get scolded by my parents because they would open a can of olives and I'd eat the whole can. <laughs> yeah, I love olives, especially black olives. Yeah. <laughs> Do you cook? 
Uh, you could call it that. I usually heat things in my microwave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, could you give us a an Episcopal blessing? Be happy to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes with a special encore presentation on Saturdays at 11 a.m. On our next show, Bishop will talk about evangelization during the digital age, including how technology is changing the way the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese communicates. Then he'll answer more questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop Rhodes a question for him to answer on a future show, call 260-436-9598. Check out past episodes of Truth in Charity by downloading the Redeemer Radio app to your smartphone or tablet, or go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can check out past episodes of Truth in Charity. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program.